All right, Multiply Church, I got a, got a couple of questions for you. The first question is this. I don't know if it's still going on or not, but it was for first service. Um, did anybody get stuck behind the bikes this morning? Yes, you did? Were you? Anybody else? A couple people? During first service, we started service, literally three people were in here because everybody showed up late because of the bike race. The room was full by the end of, the, the end of worship, but, but man, we have bikes everywhere. Uh, second thing I need to tell you is this. I'm not okay as a dad right now, so I need, I just, I'm, this is selfish. I just need you to pray for me. Um, my daughter had her first sleepover last night, so she wasn't at the house. I'm not okay. Um, we got a text this morning. And the text said, hey, um, Piper's not in the clothes that you sent her. She's wearing a, what was it, a fancy clothes, and they have makeup on. So, Matt and Amber, I'm not okay. Uh, I'm not okay at all. Thank you for watching our daughter last night, but I'm not okay as a dad. Okay, that has nothing to do with the message today. So here we go. That was all selfish. Uh, One thing that I love about our church is that we have multiple voices of communication, We know that the church is not built on one single person and the church is always built on Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, that person, not the pastors at the church. And and so it doesn't matter who's up here speaking as long as the word of God is proclaimed. And and today we have the opportunity to hear from Pastor Judah. And and what I love about Pastor Judah is his his attention to detail in scripture and and Pastor Pastor Judah's ability to dive deep into scripture, not just kind of gloss over, but to show us the ins and outs, the different nuances of what the Bible is trying to teach us. And and today, Pastor Judah is going to be preaching through Romans chapter 15. So can we give a warm welcome to Pastor Judah? Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Awesome. It's so good to be here with you this morning to be able to share from Romans chapter 15. Have you enjoyed our series so far? So just a reminder, we're in an exegetical series. Exegetical is kind of a fancy word that just means we're looking at the biblical text and we're getting our messages based on just having a Bible study with you all, right? And so we're looking through the text and instead of saying, okay, I'm going to preach on a topic and I need three points and I need different scriptures that say what these different things are that I wanted to communicate. We actually build our message based on what Paul is wanting to say in each chapter of Romans. And so it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more difficult. Eventually, I'm hoping that Pastor Zach will let me preach a topical message for you. But today we're going to read in Romans chapter 15. And I'm glad that you've enjoyed this type of series. I think it's healthy for a church to undergo something like this because as believers, it's very important that we know what it is we believe, right? We kind of understand, okay, this is why we believe the things that we believe and this is how we're going to act as a result of believing those things, So it's our goal as a teaching team, as a pastoral staff, for all of us to journey together as a community, pursuing sanctification, empowered by the Holy Spirit to make a difference in the lives of those around us and in the lives of our family, in our own self as well, as we continue to pursue what God has for us in his word. But before we go any further... I want to give a little bit of a shameless plug. If you are 6th to 12th grade, we have a new youth series starting tonight at Good Drip at 6.30 p.m. It's a series called Beyond Belief. You don't want to miss it. Okay, we're getting back around to this morning. 
Last week, we talked about Romans 14. Now, Romans 14 is one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture. But it's interesting because if you just read Romans 14 by itself with no background knowledge or anything, you may think, what in the world does this have to do with me? And last week, we learned it has everything to do with you, right? And I love that because it's a hidden gem in the Bible. And it's basically like you get a reward for studying a little deeper than you just might with just a surface level reading. Now, I love just reading through scripture. I love it. I think that's a great idea. I'm actually in a reading plan right now. Pastor Zach talked about it. Reading plan with some of our staff and our friends. And we're actually reading. It's 10 chapters a day from these different books. And it seems like a lot, but the goal in this is kind of reading it pretty quick to get a just a full grasp of scripture um, because it's, health, it's healthy to do that every now and then to go back through and read the Bible again or if you've never done it for the first time. But that's not what we're doing here today. We're looking in detail. We're studying it, right? So as a reminder, This book was originally written as a letter to the church in Rome. It was not written originally to you. Paul did not have you in mind when he's writing this book. So in order for us to understand it in 2023, being people who live in the United States, we need to kind of understand that Paul is writing to a couple different cultures, neither of which we have a lot of familiarity with, right? And so he's writing to a group of Jews and a group of Roman Gentiles. So the Jews were individuals who until the time of Jesus and still shortly thereafter for those who did not accept Christ, they followed 613 laws in the law of Moses, right? And so those laws they memorized and they kept very, very strictly. And the Gentiles had no such rules, right? They weren't as familiar with it. It's not stuff that they dealt with. And so Paul is writing to these two very different groups. In chapter 14, he begins to talk about disputable matters. But first, we need to look back real quick at chapter 13, where he sets up chapter 14, right? And he talks about indisputable matters. And the reason that these are kind of similar themes, again, is Paul doesn't end chapter 13. And in his mind, he's like, okay, now I have to switch and I'm writing in chapter 14. And this is a whole different thought. Now I'm going to chapter 15 and it's a whole different thought. That's not how he was thinking when he was writing this letter. And so this week, we need to look at 13, 14, and 15. They're similar thoughts. So it's almost like a Romans, 14, uh, Romans chapter 14, 2.0 message, right? So if you were here last week, a lot of this will be familiar to you. But I think if Paul wrote about it multiple times in one book, it's worth a couple weeks of us studying it, right? Can I get an amen? Awesome. So the end of chapter 13, real quick. Paul lists some essential matters that all Christians must adhere to. They're doctrinal beliefs and standards that we are compelled to follow. They're indisputable matters, means they are explicitly commanded in Scripture and not up for debate. Here's a brief list of some of those in Romans 13. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. 
Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. These are some things that Paul describes as indisputable. Everybody say indisputable. Indisputable. They're essential. They're commands that all Christians are to follow. Then he goes into Romans 14 and talks about disputable matters. So disputable matters are non-essential things that are not biblically commanded where we have some freedom in. Those are, as, as he talked to his audience in context, those were non-kosher diet, whether or not to drink alcohol, and which day to worship on as the Sabbath. These were very important to his audience because, again, the Jews came from a background where their entire life was structured by these rules of do's and don'ts, right? But Christ came and established the new covenant, which voided the necessity of the Jews following the laws of Moses. It liberated them from that. In that regard, and Paul is basically saying in chapter 14, if you have a conviction and it's not an essential matter that is explicitly commanded in scripture, there's actually nothing wrong with you having that conviction. In fact, if you have a conviction, then you should follow it because going against your conscience is actually a sin for you. But on the other hand, it's equally important that you understand that you have a responsibility to other believers not to force your convictions on them where non-essential matters are concerned, right? I gave the example last week of alcohol, right? So Paul talks about it as well in Romans 14, and he was dealing with some people in the church who drank and some people who didn't. And basically what he says is, it's not a sin to partake in moderation. The sin clearly outlined as an essential matter is drunkenness. But if by my drinking, I cause my brother or sister to overindulge or believe that that's okay, then that's actually not me being considerate to my, my fellow believers. And that would then be a sin for me because I'm causing them to sin. So basically, he writes in Romans 14, 3, the man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Later he writes, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But, anyone re but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Essentially, no pun intended, if you have a conviction, if your conviction is a disputable matter, follow it. But don't require other believers to also follow it. And then on the other hand, if you are around your brother and sister and you know that they have a conviction, you should respect that conviction while in their presence. Because the priority here is actually very little to do with what we're eating or what we're drinking. The priority is how are we living in community with other believers? Right. That's the importance of this passage. And if we're if we look too, too closely and spend too much time on like, OK, the rules of the eating or the drinking, can I, can't I? We lose the big picture. And the big picture is how are we pursuing Christ together as a community? 
Romans 15. We're finally at chapter 15. Can somebody say amen? Amen. amen. Thank you. Y'all, this is, this is going to take a whole lot longer if we don't get some crowd participation in here. It's like talking to a wall today. All right, Romans 15. You can laugh at that. Like I said, Romans 15 is divided into three sections. Section one is actually a continuation of the discussion in chapter 14. Section two is Paul's calling as a minister to the Gentiles. And section three is Paul's plans to visit Rome. So our focus today is going to be on section one. That doesn't mean that you're off the hook for section two or three. I actually listened to... Uh, chapter 15 of Romans three or four times on my drive to church today and got tons of great stuff out of it, even stuff that we're not going to cover today by just listening to the text being read over and over again. But we're going to concentrate mostly on chapter, uh, section one because it's what's going to be most applicable to us today as a group. But you're not off the hook because all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, right? So read section two and three, but let me give you some background on them so that when you read it, you kind of know what's going on. So Paul's calling as minister to the Gentiles is the second section of Romans 15. That's important because remember throughout the entire book of Romans, Paul continuously makes a case for the Gentiles, right? He's directing statements at the Jewish believers so that they will accept the Gentile believers. This was important because for the longest time, the Jews did everything they could to avoid the Gentiles. Because of the ceremonial laws of Moses and just how they lived their life, it was not conducive to relationships or friendships with Gentiles. And so there's this underlying prejudice that Paul is addressing, and he knows it all too well because Paul grew up in the law of Moses. He was trained as a Pharisee. And so he was very familiar with how it, how, how it went and the underlying prevailing cultural assumptions that Jews had about Gentiles. So it's very important that at the conclusion of this letter, he wraps up an uh, underlying theme from the entire book that Gentiles have a place in the kingdom of God. He wanted his audience to know that salvation is available for all. Section three, that's a good place to amen. Section three, he details his plans to visit Rome. This is really practical. It's important because he wants his audience to know that he's coming to visit them. It's a bit of an encouragement for them. Um, but then he also asks them for money, which is kind of funny. Um, so we don't have time to break everything down today, uh, but I want to focus on section number one. Um, but before we do that, can we pray together? Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you. We are grateful. We're thankful for who you are in our lives. And I pray that uh, as your word goes forth today, we would apply it to our lives and to our hearts. And that we would leave prepared to pursue sanctification so that we can look a little bit more like you today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So church, today we're going to discuss the Bible. Can somebody say amen? Awesome. This is less like more like a three-point sermon per se. Again, Pastor Zach, one day, let me get a topical sermon. And I'll give you some great three-point messages. You'll be taking notes. It'll be awesome. But today, we're just talking about 
the scripture as it was written in the text, which is a beautiful thing, right? But for those of you who are note takers like myself and go crazy when there's not a like conclusive train of thought to follow that kind of goes throughout the whole message, I have some headings for you, right? I don't have like points, but I'll give you some headings for your notes. Is that good? Okay, so the first heading is don't sweat the disputable things. Again, remember, there's going to be some very familiar things that we talk about today if you were here last week, but that's because we're following the pattern of the text. Romans 15, verse, starting in verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. How many like hope? It's a good thing. It's a good thing to have. Paul's emphasis here in this text is twofold. To instruct stronger believers to prioritize weaker ones and to point believers toward hope. Now, if I was writing a letter to a church, I wouldn't necessarily categorize. There's two categories. Those of you who are weak and those of you who are strong. But Paul does it and he can do it. So <laughs> we're going to go with it. In this context, the weaker believers that he describes are actually those who are still following the law of Moses. So he says it's not really bad for them to do that as long as they don't force others to do it as well. He's like, if this is a conscious issue for you, then for you to not do that would be a sin. But just make sure that you don't force others who don't have those same convictions to do that as well, because it's not a scriptural issue anymore. It's a serious offense to make a brother or sister in Christ believe that they're committing a sin if it is a disputable matter that you're discussing. And while those Paul deems as weaker believers have a responsibility not to force others into like legalism or following a bunch of rules that's not in the Bible, those he calls stronger believers have a responsibility as well. He writes in Romans 14, It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Now, Paul's. He's not telling them that they aren't allowed to drink wine or eat meat. He's actually telling them that they are allowed to in the freedom that Christ has given them. But when in the presence of believers who think it's a sin, they should respect the convictions of their brothers and sisters and refrain from those activities if it's going to cause them to sin. See, church, in all of this, we have to remember that when it comes to disputable matters, whatever decision we make should take into account consideration for other believers. I tell our worship team all the time, as people who are on stage leading the church in worship, you have a responsibility to not only look like Christ, but to respect the convictions of other believers. So there are things that I do as a pastor or avoid doing that may be completely fine for you to do. But if I did one of those things against my convictions, it would be a sin for me. Why? Because there are things in the Bible that we have the freedom to do, but say you may do it in, uh, in an indulging matter and I go about it in front of you 
that's probably going to cause you to sin, right? And so it's important for us to be conscious of our other brothers and sisters. Why is that? Because the focus, again, that Paul makes over and over again is it's not about what you eat or what you drink. It's about the community of believers pursuing Christ together in unity. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. But going back to Romans 14, Paul writes, If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Okay, I want to draw your attention to verse 17 here. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the church in Rome is running into this problem because the Jews are making this rule, okay, everything is about eating or drinking the do's and don'ts. And Paul is kind of flipping it upside down and saying, actually, it's not a matter of eating or drinking. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So church, are you a part of the kingdom of God? Yes, you are. So as those who are a part of the kingdom of God, we are compelled to pursue righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying eating or drinking matters so little. Why is he using that? Because those are the issues that really um, are, are prevalent in the congregation in Rome at the time, right? Eating or drinking matters so little. What matters is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul's goal through the end of chapter 13, all the way through where we're at in chapter 15, is simple. Freedom in Christ and the unity of the church. This theme continues, and if you're taking notes, this will be your next heading. We must be united. Paul writes, starting in chapter 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will have hope. So why is Paul saying this? Why is he quoting the Old Testament over and over again? Why is he emphasizing so much Gentile inclusion? Because remember, as we know, once again, he's writing to two audiences. The church in Rome consisted of Gentiles and Jewish believers. So by quoting scripture, quoting the Old Testament, he's making a case for the salvation of the Gentiles as was foretold by Jewish prophets with whom the Jewish believers would have been very familiar. And so when he's saying Isaiah writes, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise over the nations. In him the Gentiles will have hope. 
He's trying to point to the fact that the unity between the two groups was prophesied. And it's appropriate to go out and be unified with these other believers. Why is that important? Why, why do, what, what does it have to do with us? Why is this even important for us to look at and spend so much time on? Well, Jesus gives us a hint at that in Mark 3.25. He says, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Okay, so again, we're looking at unity in Romans. But if I were with Paul right now, I would ask him, how in the world are we supposed to prioritize unity if there's like so many different denominations? Or if my neighbor believes that it's a sin to go to the movies, or my friend believes it's a sin to drink caffeine, or my friend, they, they, their guys only wear pants and their women only wear skirts, right? Or this person believes it's a sin to wear a hat in church. You know, how can we be unified, right? How, how can we pursue unity together? And so let me draw you to a quote from Dr. Frank Turk, who spoke two weeks ago. He says, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. We've got to agree on the essential matters. We talked about a few of them last week. They're all throughout the Bible, and they were kind of consumed into creeds in the early church and those creeds were agreed upon as doctrinal statements meaning if you are an orthodox church orthodox in this context meaning right belief bible believing church if you're an orthodox church these are things we agree to be essential matters right these are things that are important for us to follow everybody has to follow these things but in the non-essentials we can have unity by agreeing to disagree peacefully. That's the key. Peacefully agree to disagree. Whether or not my brother or sister drinks caffeine is of so little importance to me because there are bigger things to deal with. There are essential matters out there, right? Essential matters, we like to think of them as big sins, like, oh, let's not commit adultery, right? Let's not go out, like Paul was talking about, uh, orgies and drunkenness and all that stuff. But right after that, he says jealousy, right? Okay, last night, you might not have gone to an orgy, but you might have been jealous on your way to church of somebody's car, right? Like, we have bigger things to deal with. And if we are continuously focusing on, oh, these people, man, they don't dress the way I do, who cares, if that's their conviction, let them have it, right? Because for them, if they believe it's a sin as a man to wear shorts, then they shouldn't do that, right? But like, I don't have time to get mad at that because I got so many things to work on with me to try to make me look more like Jesus tomorrow than I did today to worry about somebody else when it comes to a non-essential matter. We need to focus on the essentials. One area that the church really struggles in, and it's embarrassing, we look like a bunch of disgruntled, delusional people who can't agree on anything, especially when it comes to like social media and stuff like that. Like, we've got to chill when it comes to non-essential matters. If, if, if someone calls upon you to explain your position, absolutely. Explain your position peacefully and then be like, hey, let's focus on the essential stuff now, right? We don't have time to argue about the little things. That's why Paul says it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
So, as believers, if we are following the essential matters, don't you think we should probably think about what the essential matters are? So, if you're a note taker, that'd be your third heading. What are the essential matters? Well, first of all, you don't get to decide what they are. You don't get to make that decision. Adherence to subjective moral reasoning is not conducive to the Christian lifestyle. So, don't think that Paul's saying, hey, if it's a sin for you to do it, then it's a sin. Like, if your conscience tells you it's a sin, then it's a sin for you. Don't misconstrue that to think that you get to make your own rules. Right? On the essential matters, we've got to be unified, remember? And you don't get to decide what those essential matters are. It's tempting for us to get into that because we're surrounded by a me-first culture. And the me-first culture would suggest if it feels good, it is good. But that's actually a selfish lifestyle. And it leans to a morality that results in unfulfilled life, void of true purpose. You don't get to decide what is right and wrong, where essential matters are concerned. You have freedom in the non-essential matters. But on the essential matters, if you agree to be a follower of Christ, you must be held to a standard that Christ has established for you. As believers in Christ, we submit to the teachings of the Bible and actually change our lifestyle so it lines up with God's word. And then we're right back at this idea that we've been talking about, that Paul's been talking about throughout the book of Romans, and that is sanctification. Sanctification is being separated from sin and set apart to serve God. I think I say that every time I stand up here. Why? Because Paul talks about it over and over and over again. The journey of Christ that we follow is one where we are continuously molded into his image. Sanctification is being separated from sin and set apart to serve God. So here's a good question. As believers, we agree to follow the essential matters. So if I asked you today to take a page and write down the essential matters, could you do it? Could you fill up a page? There's tons of them. But could you fill up a page? Anybody? Maybe? Maybe not? Okay, let's make it a little bit more doable, right? Could you fill up? Half a page. Maybe half a page, maybe, yeah. Okay, so for those who are still on the fence, I don't know, I don't know. Well, could, you, could you fill up like maybe a paragraph? Write a paragraph of what, as a Christian, you believe the essential matters to be? Okay, let's make it, let's make it easier. Two sentences. Could you write two sentences about the essential matters of what it means to be a Christian? Would it be cool if you knew that you only need one? One sentence. There's a lot of essential matters, but they can be summed up in this. Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. So you may be shocked that we can just say this, right? Because there's a lot of things that we're supposed to do or not do as believers. But you don't have to take my word for it because I'm actually just quoting Jesus. So in Matthew 22, Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious groups who were uh, of Jewish descent, who studied the law and tried to trip Jesus up over and over again with questions about it. Matthew says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, 
the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, if Jesus says that these are the two greatest commandments, as followers of Jesus, we should probably look into that, don't you think? So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to look at the second one first because I want to end with the greatest commandment. So the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. One of Paul's key themes in Romans 14 and 15 is how you treat people matters. Look at your neighbor and say, how you treat people matters. It's time we prioritize our brothers and sisters. Once again, going back to Romans 15, our text for today, it says, May the God who gives endurance give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we get the idea. Jesus is like, hey, this is the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. But he's talking to a group of people who had 613 do's and don'ts. 613 laws, and a lot of them dealt very specifically about how you treat your neighbor. There's even some, I'm paraphrasing, that's like, okay, if your neighbor's ox falls in a ditch on this day, can you help them? Right? So Jesus is talking to a group of people who are following those laws. How can he say, treat others the way that you want to be treated? Like, okay, love, love, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Because when we're loving our neighbor as ourselves, it's not that how we treat them doesn't matter. It's that when we love them as we love ourselves, we will treat them with respect because we want to be treated with respect. Right? I don't have to be told, don't steal from my neighbor because I wouldn't want to get robbed. Y'all, somebody broke into my truck two months ago. I was so mad. That is my pride and joy. That is my favorite possession. It's amazing. I love that truck so much. I went in the inside, was ransacked. I was mad. I wanted to throw hands. But of course, there were no camera footage and there was nobody to like, you know, it was, it was just bad. But I was mad, right? Okay, I wouldn't want to be treated like that. I know how it feels. You never will have to tell me, Judah, don't steal. Why? Because somebody broke into my truck. I know what it feels like. I don't want to be treated that way. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he doesn't have to say, don't gossip and talk about someone behind their back. Why? Because would you want to be gossiped and talked about behind your back? No. He doesn't say, don't go around and beat people up. Why? Well, because would you, want to, would you want to be beaten up? No. We've got to prioritize our brothers and our sisters. Then we get to the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. I mix those twos up. With all your heart and your soul, with all your mind. Just in case y'all are like following along word for word. Don't, don't want you to think I'm a heretic. Anyways, so I was at the men's retreat a couple weeks ago. And if you were on the men's retreat... Say amen. amen. Let's go. If you weren't on the men's retreat, you should come next time 
Let me tell you, I was skeptical going into it. I had never been on a men's retreat, and I was like, all these guys are talking about this men's retreat. It changed our life. That's a little weird. I'm like going up with a group of guys to talk about things. I'm like, I don't know, but I'll go because obviously I'm required to go. But y'all, when I went there, no joke, it was awesome. Like we had tons of fun. Multiple people had to go to the ER. Like it was a good men's retreat. Y'all should be there next time, okay? But one of the activities that, that we did, um, it was optional. There was about 10 of us that went. We went on a ruck up the mountain. So I don't know if you know what a ruck is, but let me kind of put it into perspective here. So basically you take a hike and you take all the fun out of it and make it really hard. And so we decided uh, under the guidance and leadership of Jake Norris, who owns 926 CrossFit Gym, we decided that we would follow him. And he had this six mile route planned for us. And we were, we were ascending like 2,200 feet of elevation. It was supposed to be six miles, but by the time we got on the trail, he had added a bunch of stuff and made it way longer than six miles. And we were going to hike really, really fast so we could get a workout in, which I don't know why. We had already worked out that day, but we were going to hike really, really fast. And you were supposed to wear like a weighted vest or something to make it hard, right? And I didn't have mine with me because nobody told me to bring one, but I did have a backpack. And so I filled the backpack all the way to the top with water bottles. Now, that felt like a good idea, and then I put it on. It still felt okay, and then I got out there, and I, I stood beside the group of guys, and Jake's like, let me feel that backpack. He picks it up, and he goes, sure about that guy? Now, Jake is a big dude. So my first clue that I should have taken some water bottles out, when he looks at it and goes, are you sure about that, my guy? I was like, yeah, I got this, bro. So the water, the, it ended up being like 40 pounds or so, and I felt good about this up until about the 20 minute mark. Now we had had a bunch of stuff that happened. We got on the wrong trail. We ended up having to climb this mountain. We all got into a yellow jacket's nest. You want to talk about 10 guys hiking a mountain faster than you've ever seen? When one of them gets stung, it's like, there's yellow jackets. They were everywhere. I had some in my shoe. It was bad. That was the beginning of the hike. So 20 minutes in, I start to feel it. And I'm like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I've spent the last eight years of my life in Florida right? So my adult life, I've spent in Florida, which is very flat. So 20 minutes in, I'm thinking, okay, 20 minutes, 10 guys hiking pretty fast. Even if we're going slow, we're at least two miles in, right? Nope, we were not. We had crossed the mile mark, but we were probably like a mile and a half in. And I asked, um, I was like, how, how, you know, not trying to act weak. I was like, yo, question. How, uh, how far, how far, how far out are we? And uh, like, if you've ever like been working out, like doing any type of cardio or calisthenics with a group of guys who are in better shape than you are, you don't want to actually ask the question, how you feel, how, how far out are we? So I was trying to act tough. I'm like, how far are we? Oh, well, we've gone about a mile and a half. And how far do we have to go? It was about eight miles was about how far we were going to have to hike. Uh, when all was said and done. And so I was like, okay, I, I got this. I got this. Multiple people asked if they could help me with my backpack, which is so super nice, but I was not about to be the guy that filled a backpack full of waters and couldn't carry it to the top of the mountain. 45 minutes later, and it was really starting to hurt. My legs had gone stiff. I had dirt in my shoes because I didn't know we were going on a big hike up the mountain. I had, uh, my back was hurting, my neck was hurting. At one point, I tripped, and I almost fell, and it was like 200 feet down. It, there was a snake that we had to move off the thing. Somebody saw a bear cub, but you never want to see a bear cub. Um, 
but I was determined to make it to the top of the mountain. And every, about every 10 minutes, Jake would look back and he'd be like, you good? I'd be like, yeah, bro, I got this. You, you want to walk faster? You know, stuff like that. And, and he'd be like, hey, it's okay. We're almost to the top of the hill. You can see that tree line. That's, that's where it levels out. See, there's no trees higher than that. I was like, great, we're almost there. We were not. <laughs> Y'all, listen. So I could see the tree line, but what Jake was like, hey, it's around the next curve. What I didn't know is like, it was like this. We were going up and down, like up all around. It was, it was intense, right? So every few minutes for over an hour, he'd look back and be like, we're almost there. We're almost there. I quickly learned that did not mean we're almost there. Still to this day, I'm trying to figure out what it meant, but it did not mean we're almost there. But as my body began to literally die while I was walking this cliff, I figured out that if I could just stay towards the like front of the pack, then I would be okay. Because when I started to fall back, that's when I started to notice, okay, the terrain is getting steep. It's really hot out here. My feet hurt. So my goal was just to focus on where Jake was at the whole time and try to stay as close to him as possible. The terrain and stuff was still there. It was still dangerous. My back still hurt. My feet ached. But it was less of a factor because I was focused on getting close in proximity toward the leader of our hike right? So when Jesus said the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, he's not saying that the do's and don'ts aren't important. He's not saying that the other commandments don't matter. He was saying that the closer you get to the leader, the less you'll have to focus on the do's and don'ts because by watching how the leader's doing it, you'll be able to mimic those actions, right? I don't have a lot of hiking experience, clearly, right? There's not much. I mean, I, there wasn't great hiking where I lived in Florida. We did other things, not hike. Okay, I don't know the do's and don'ts. I don't know the rules, but I didn't have to because I was following Jake. And I was close enough to him to see where he put his foot. And I could see which stones he was stepping on so that I wouldn't fall. He was the first one to see the snake and move it out of the way, so I didn't have to, right? All I had to do was make sure I was close enough to him to see where he put his foot. The problem got whenever I was further away. When I started to fall behind, that's when I couldn't see where he put his foot, right? I had to pay extra attention to where I was walking. As Christians, what we focus on matters. The things we focus on directly correlate to our success or our failure. I did reach the top of that mountain, but there's no way, thank you, there's no way I would have gotten to the top if I had been focused on the length of time it would take to get there, the pain, or if I had to read a book to learn all the rules and all the do's and don'ts about hiking before I started my journey. Now, if I wanted to keep hiking, I would certainly figure it out, right? But for getting on that road, all I needed to do was make sure I was close to Jake. When Paul is writing in Romans 15, what he's getting at is that the law kept people focused on the rules. But the gospel keeps people focused on Jesus. When you're focused on Jesus, you stay on the right path because Jesus is your guide. The closer you get to Jesus, the further you get 
from sin. As we draw near to God, he draws near to us and he begins to chip away the things in our life that do not honor him. It's all about your proximity to Jesus. When you're close to Jesus, you treat people a different way. When you're close to Jesus, it's not that the rules don't apply to you anymore. It's that you don't need to be told not to treat your neighbor with contempt because you're close to Jesus and you know how he wants people to be treated because you study, you pray, you read the word, you gather together as a community of believers. Your whole life revolves around getting as close to Jesus as you can so you don't fall down the mountain. Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Here's a part I love. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The problem comes when we take our eyes off our guide. The problems in life happen when you stop focusing on Jesus and start focusing on the problems. The passage goes on to say, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning it shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you take your eyes off Jesus, that's when you grow weary, and that's when you lose heart. So what should our response be? The response is to stay close to Jesus. Fully commit your ways to the Lord. Life is so much harder when we're sitting on the fence. If there are things that are in your life right now that do not honor God and do not bring him glory, do as Paul instructs and throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles so that we can run with perseverance. The essentials matter. Love God, love people. Stay close to Jesus. Proximity matters. As we draw near to God through prayer and reading the Bible and fellowshipping with one another, we actually will start to look more like Jesus. That's when we start to realize how little we actually have it together. Because the closer we get to Jesus, the more we realize things in our own life that don't mirror his reflection. And that's a good thing. As you grow closer to Jesus, expect to be convicted. Expect to feel bad when you complain. Expect to feel bad when you give a false report. Expect to feel bad. Why? Because you got your eyes so close to Jesus, you know what he looks like. And when you're so close to Jesus, he will start to mold you into his image. But the molding can be uncomfortable, so don't let it discourage you. Conviction is a good thing. Psalm 25, 12 says, Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the way they should choose. We need to be willing to sacrifice the things that we might enjoy doing if the Holy Spirit convicts us of them. And as we draw, draw closer to God, just be prepared to be convicted and understand that it's a good thing. Conviction isn't bad. It's only bad when you ignore it. 
And lastly, James 4.17 says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do it and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. The problem that the Jews in Rome had encountered was that they were so focused on the do's and don'ts, they neglected the good, right? So one thing we read about, we read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're always focused on the law. And it led to their own self-righteous perception. They were so focused on the law. But we really need to be focused on doing good. And it's not a works-based religion. We're not doing good so that we can get something. We're doing good because we're so close to Jesus that everything about us starts to look like him. It starts to change how we treat our relatives. It starts to change how we treat our friends. It starts to change how we treat ourselves. And as Pastor Manny comes up to close us out, I want to encourage you. This week, make decisions that make you a little bit more like Jesus than you were yesterday. Read the Bible. Figure out who this Jesus is and what he wants for your life. And you will be transformed.